Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 13 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week we're in Matthew and Mark and John. We're covering some really big miracles like the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda and Peter walking on the water and the Savior in the fourth watch when he goes and he stills the storm. I mean, there are some big moments that happen, but I would say probably the biggest moment is the Savior's Bread of Life sermon. In fact, it's that sermon that made me decide that this is where we should advance to an orange belt level. So if you're following along in the Discipleship Dojo card, this is where you shift from yellow to orange. And that's because this is one of those pinnacle sermons that teaches us a huge amount about the Savior and his work and what we have to do with it. What he hopes will become of us in the process. In fact, one of the things I loved that I studied this week was right in the introductory manual of the Come Follow Me. Like that intro paragraph of the Come Follow Me manual has some beautiful thoughts about what ties all these stories together. And it basically mentioned two things that called out to me. First, it said that although the Savior did these wonderful things, a big portion of his ministry was to empower others to do wonderful things, especially his apostles who he's training in his discipleship dojo. So you see that happen this week in a few different places, and I'll point it out. Another big thing that I love is he encourages people to accept him and have faith in him even when they can't fully understand what he's teaching them. That's a lot of what you're going to get in the Bread of Life sermon. It's this invitation to have faith and believe even when you can't quite wrap your head around exactly what he's trying to say. He knows that they'll understand in time, but he's asking people to just have faith in who he is. He also makes a big push to teach about the witnesses that we have. So if you're struggling to have faith in him, if that's a big leap, then he gives you all these additional evidences that you can lean on. So there's all kinds of goodness, not just in the miracles themselves, but in the way the Savior uses these miracles to help bolster our testimony. So I promise this is a week you do not want to miss. In fact, I wish we could spread it into two weeks, but since we can't, I'll go a little bit faster where I can. I'll show you some of the harmonies between the Gospels and point out a few key differences. But this is a big week where if you're in the course, you're going to want to dive into the notes. They're a little longer this week just because there's so much to cover. But if you're hoping to go a little bit deeper into any of these miracles or into the sermon itself and find out more about what the prophets and apostles have said regarding these verses, go into the notes. But for those of you who can't, or if you're just in a hurry, stick with me and I'll guide you through it so that when you do get to your scriptures, you can jump in with both feet and enjoy all the goodness that's in front of you. So, all right, you guys, let's get started. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to jump into Matthew. Of all the beautiful things you're going to study this week, the part about King Herod, I almost just want to skip <laughs> because it's just it's it's the opposite of empowering. It is just sad to watch how sin corrupts a person's heart and mind and they fall because of it. This is where you learn about the death of John the Baptist, and he dies essentially at the hands of Herod. Herod is not a king. He's a tetrarch. He, so he's over a certain area of the Jews, and he's put in place by Romans. And he is someone who is... Um, falling prey to his lust. I don't know his full story, but I do know from the verses that when you study that essentially he has taken his brother's wife for his own. And that is an unlawful marriage, especially according to the Jews. And so John the Baptist made that really clear, that their union is unlawful. And that creates some enemies for John the Baptist, because Herod and his new wife, Herodias, um, are pretty much against John the Baptist at this point, because they're angry at his outcry. John the Baptist has a following. A lot of people, in fact, a lot of the Jewish population recognize him as a prophet. So for him to condemn Herod is a big deal. 
Herod has to keep the popularity of the Jews. Those are the people he rules, and Rome won't keep him in power if he loses their trust. So he's walking a bit of a tightrope here. What's interesting to me is when push comes to shove, he leans on the side of his own lust and his own pride and, and falls. So you'll see, if you look at five, he fears the multitude. He, he wants to execute John, but he won't because he's afraid of the multitude lashing out against him. But when it comes to his wife and his wife's daughter, things turn. So on his birthday party, you can see in verse six, essentially what happens is Herodias, the, the new wife, has her daughter dance before Herod. What's particularly creepy about that is the daughter would be Herod's niece, right? Because it used to be his brother's wife. So this is a very incestuous -y kind of vibe. There's even more to it if you go into the study in the notes. But this is, I think, what happens. You know how we teach that the gospel helps us create sin-resistant souls? I feel like when you go against the principles of the gospel, you start to see your soul erode a little bit. The way Sherry Dew says it is sin makes you stupid. And that's kind of what's happening to Herod. When push comes to shove, essentially what happens is the daughter dances before him. She pleases him so much that he says, I'm going to give you whatever you want. And she, of course, because her mother's influenced her, asks for the head of John the Baptist. So then Herod's stuck. He can either keep his word in front of all the people that he just made this big boastful promise or he can please the Jews that he rules over. And when push comes to shove, he chooses to hold on to his pride and his lust and his weakness. So he has John executed. What's interesting about this is, I think, the way the Savior responds to it. I actually think in every chapter that we studied this week, you're going to see the Savior trying to train his apostles. I think he knows his time is short. And so he's taking every opportunity he can to help them understand what it means to be a leader in his church. And what he does in reaction to John the Baptist's death, I think, is training ground. So you see that the disciples of John bury the body and then come and tell Jesus about it. And Jesus does two things. First, he goes to a solitary place. I think he needs to grieve and he needs to process this and he needs to talk to his Father in heaven. And then he shows compassion. So if you look at 14, and Jesus went forth. He doesn't stay in this solitary place. He doesn't stay in his grief. He goes forth. And he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. To me, I see this as an incredible lesson on how to handle grief. I think he knows his apostles are going to have this kind of weight and grief after he goes, and they're going to need to know how to deal with it. And so I think he's giving them an example. I think he also feels all these things, and he is overflowing with compassion for the multitudes because that's just his nature. But I think it also is a really powerful teaching for all of us. If you go on the notes, there's a beautiful conference talk. I can't remember who gave it. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, it's talking about Sister Wright. Um, you know, she, she was dealing with chemo at the time, and her husband, I think, gives her this recommendation that she, she should serve in some small ways, and she first bristles at it, and then over time tries it, and then realizes what a balm it is to her sickened body to have this outlet. And I think that's what the Savior is trying to teach all of us in this moment of incredible grief where he turns outward. Because he chose to turn outward, more people gravitate towards him. So this is when you're going to see the first blush of the feeding of the 5,000. So in the Matthew account, it's pretty short. You only have it in a few verses, but we'll touch on it in a couple others as well. First, you're going to see that the disciples come to Jesus and they're worried. They've gone to this solitary place, a quieter place where there's not enough food for everyone to eat, and they're worried about the people. So they come to Jesus and say, you know, like, should we send the people home? 
And Jesus' response is empowering. Remember, that's what he does this week and all the weeks. He's trying to help empower them to live up to their priesthood privileges. And I think he's trying to teach them how. So if you look in the verses, he says in 16, But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. The apostles don't have any food. (laughs) They don't know how to solve this problem. To me, it is very similar to the brother Jared, just like we talked about last week. I think he is presenting them with a problem and saying, use your creative talents, use your energy, come up with a solution. And so they struggle, but they come up with something, right? So in 17, and they say unto him, well, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. Like, You can tell they're trying. It's their equivalent of the 16 stones, right? They're like, we have something. And what I love is the Xavier responds with this gracious, I can work with that. In fact, that's the answer I get in so many of my prayers, you guys, where I know I don't have enough. I know what I'm offering is not enough to produce what I need to produce. And what he often will say to me is, Maria, I can work with that. You know, like I talked to you about it before. I almost picture it like... um. You know, those competition shows like Project Runway or Top Chef or any of those competition type shows where the real masters can take anything and create something incredible out of it. You know, they can take seatbelts and make a prom dress or people on Top Chef can take like gas station food and make something that tastes like it's from a gourmet restaurant. That teaches you that they are a master. That's the same thing that the Savior does here. He's saying, I can work with that. I just need you to bring me something to multiply bring me something and I can work with it. And again, I think he's trying to help them see you can do this too. They're going to need to perform their own miracles down the road. And he wants them to understand like, this is within your grasp. Let me show you how it's done. So you get a taste of what he does. He takes the loaves and the fish. He blesses them. He thanks heaven and raises his eyes up so that everyone knows who the, who the, you know, gratitude should go to. And then he breaks this bread and this fish and they distribute it. There's a few cool things that I love in the Matthew account. For example, I really love that the disciples are the ones or the apostles are the ones that take it to the multitude. There is something about that visual that I think is really powerful. He doesn't have everybody make a great big line and come through a buffet of sorts. He has them sit in companies. In fact, we'll see this in some of the other gospels, but he invites them to sit in an organized way. And then the apostles take things to them. I think he's showing them, you know, the order of heaven, that there is order and process. And that these men who are going to be your leaders, they are your servants. They are here to bring you food and to give you what I multiplied. There is something really powerful about that message in the visual to me. And so they all take it. They all take the food and they are filled, filled to the point that there are 12 baskets left over. And we'll get more into this in the next gospel, but I just think the miracle is a powerful one. It, it reminds us of what he is capable of and what he's hoping we will realize we are capable of. Not that we can produce this same kind of miracle. I mean, no one can produce the same kind of miracle that I'm aware of, but I think he's trying to teach his apostles and us that there are privileges that we need to rise to, that when we choose to use our powers for good and then turn to him to be the multiplier, miracles can happen. In fact, they have happened and they can happen again. We learn in verse 21 that in addition to the 5,000 men, it's women and children, these families, almost like King Benjamin style families who come and participate in this miracle, witness it, consume it, and I'm sure want to go tell everyone they know, because pretty soon a massive multitude is following the Savior. And so he departs. In fact, what it says in 22 is that he straightway departs, like right after this miracle occurs, 
they go. And I think that's probably for a few reasons, and I don't, I don't know all of them. But I think one is so that they can realize that they're going to get hungry again. This is going to feed into his Bread of Life sermon that's coming a little bit down the road. But I don't think he wants to stay with the multitude all the time. He wants them to process things and understand. I also think he's trying to help his apostles grow up a little bit in their understanding. They're maturing at a different rate than other people, and he, he has a test for them. So basically, the Savior sends them out on the Sea of Galilee, and he goes apart to pray. What's interesting about this is this is a bit of a shift from the last miracle we saw on the Sea of Galilee. Last time, the Savior was in the boat, and he was sleeping. This time, he is apart, maybe on one of those mountains that's around the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of interesting to me that he there's this progression. I think he's he's helping them become independent. In fact, I really feel like what the Savior is often doing is he's trying to help us make independent decisions that are aligned with his teachings. He doesn't, he can't spoon feed them all the time. He can't stay with them constantly. And he knows he's not going to be with them constantly. And so he's, he's trying to empower them so that they can do things better on their own. And that means you have to put them to the test and they have to fail a little bit. I mean, that's what every good dojo leader would do, right? So that's what you're going to see play out in this next miracle. So in the second half of Matthew 14, you're going to see the sea and the storm, and you're going to see what happens with Peter. So when you go in the verses, first it talks about how the winds are contrary in 24. So things are not going well. Sea of Galilee is about seven miles, at least the distance that they need to cross, and the winds are going against them, which means they are toiling all through the night. This is those that fourth watch story. You're going to see this in a few different places this week, but in this one, you see that in verse 25, it is the fourth watch. So that means it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. What's hard about that is they just had this big day in this solitary place performing miracles and serving food to thousands, and now they go straight into a boat at evening and row all night long. I can't even imagine how tired their arms are, first from hauling food for 5,000 people and then from rowing for like nine hours straight. So they're in the fourth watch and they are struggling. And then they see something coming. So if you look in 25, in the fourth watch, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out with fear. I think this is the same thing we talked about when we were telling the Christmas story. You know, like, there's a reason angels say fear not when they, when they come. Sometimes I think religious experiences are kind of scary at first. Everything is unfamiliar and you're not, it's hard to get your bearings, things. I mean, they've never seen somebody walk on the water before. And I just think that's important to help our kids understand because they're going to have some spiritual encounters that can be scary. You know, the first time you go to the temple or when you think you get an answer about, the person you're going to marry or the mission you're supposed to go on, it can be a little bit scary. And that's an okay emotion. What you can't do is lean into that fear. You have to trust in the goodness behind it. And so that's what Jesus does. He tries to help bridge that gap. So in 27, but straightway, Jesus spake unto them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. That is one of my very favorite phrases. In fact, it's in several of the gospels because oftentimes when I am afraid, that is the phrase that comes back to my mind be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. When we know that it is him, you can be of good cheer even when the storm hasn't stilled. In fact, I love that he's giving them this instruction when the storm is still raging and their muscles are still tired. He says, be of good cheer because it's me. (laughs) You know, it's that same message that we've heard from President Nelson over and over again about trusting in the focus of our life and not the circumstances. He's saying, focus on me. If If it's me, then you don't need to be afraid. 
And so this is when Peter puts it to the test. So Peter answers him in 28 and he says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come, come to thee on the water. And this in 29, and he said, come. Peter already has been invited to come follow the Savior, and he did. And I feel like this is Peter advancing. He's in the same spot that, that the apostles were when they were trying to figure out what food they could possibly give the 5,000. He's in a spot where he's like, I don't know how I'm going to come. I just know if you ask me to, it can be done. The same way the apostles just before had come and said, like, we have this bread, we have these fish. What can we do? I feel like Peter understands. He's like, I don't know how it's going to work, but if you ask me to, I know I can do it. Part of the reason I think that works is because of what they learned on the water last time. When Peter was on the boat with the Savior last time, and the Savior said they were going to get across, they got across. And so I think he's leaning on the faith he built in the last test, and he's advancing it in this test. And I think the Savior loves it when we push that envelope, when we are willing to like, put our faith on the line and say, I believe, even though I don't understand. And that's what Peter does. So he steps out onto the water. In fact, if you look in 29, it says he walked on the water to go to Jesus. There's a great talk from Elder Hollins. I can't remember if I put it in the notes. It's in his book, Our Day Star Rising. But he essentially says we should applaud this moment. Peter is the only person other than the Savior in the history of ever who has walked on the water that we know of. This isn't, we should celebrate even imperfect faith like this because he accomplished something incredible. In fact, I think that's what the Savior sees. I love, I, there was a talk from Michael Wilcox years ago that I listened to where he talked about the empty seats. And he says, you, you want to picture the boat from the Savior's perspective, that he doesn't, he can see the empty seat that Peter could have been sitting in and chose to get out of his comfortable seat on the boat and come out on the water. And there's something powerful in that to me, because it helps me as well. When I think about my empty seats, I don't think the Savior just sees the good choices I'm making. I think he also sees all the choices I could have made. You know, so like when I show up for scripture study with my kids in the morning and I am so tired, I think he can see the warm bed that I crawled out of to get there. I think you get credit for all the things you could have chosen when you choose to like try to advance, to try to come closer to him. And that's what I think he is speaking to Peter about when he talks about his little faith. So when you look in the verse, it says, but when Peter saw the wind boisterous, this is verse 30, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And then the Savior responds with, oh, thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Again, I don't take this little faith as a condemnation. I see it as little, like it's beginning. It's Elma's seed beginning to sprout. Like Peter stepped onto the water. He is beginning to sprout. That it didn't go perfectly and that he couldn't manage it perfectly doesn't mean the Savior isn't pleased with him. I think he's saying, this is a beginning. You're sprouting. This is great. You know, I, I, I see this as a moment of rejoicing because I think the Savior can see the empty seat in the boat and he can see where Peter turned. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago, Peter's a fisherman. He spent his whole life on the water. If he was sinking in the water, he should be swimming to the boat. You know, like his instincts and everything he's learned his whole life would tell you, swim to the boat. But he doesn't. He reaches for the Savior. He turns that direction. And I think that is a big jump in his sprout. I think the Savior sees that and he says, it's little faith. Don't doubt. Embrace what you know about who you are and what you can do. Trust in it. And so I think for me, I read it as encouraging. When you go a little bit further, you see that as soon as they get to the boat together, the wind ceases. And this is when the apostles advance their own testimonies. They all, 
where the, where before they saw him as like they wondered at his powers. Now they say in twenty or in twenty thirty three, they they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, "Of a truth, thou art the Son of God." Their testimonies are advancing at a rapid rate. Peter's did, the apostles on the boat did, and I think the Savior is rejoicing with them. When they get out on the boat, there's more people to help and teach and save, and so he does. Right? You see that all the people who come to him, who reach out to the Savior, are made whole. You guys remember in the Old Testament when I told you that one of my favorite ways to talk about divine nature and eternal destiny is to picture a house on Fixer Upper. <laughs> so I learned this from an institute teacher on a podcast years ago, but she talked about how you should picture each person, including yourself, as one of those three-room houses. And that the first thing they do on one of those decoration shows or fixer-upper kind of shows is they knock down all the walls that are on the inside of the house so that the light can stream in and you can get this big open space. And I feel like that's our job in this life as well. That we can't see ourselves as just this middle space, this mortal experience. We came from something great and we will be something great. And our job is to knock down those walls so that the light can shine in and we can see ourselves fully. When I read Mark 6, especially the part where they talk about, isn't this just the carpenter's son? I feel like this is giving you an understanding of what happens when you choose to only see the middle room when you choose to only, like you put these mortal blinders on and you refuse to break down those walls. Because he is a carpenter's son, just like we talked about last week. He is Mary's son, but he is not only a carpenter's son. In fact, he's not even his son. You know, like he, there is there is power in understanding that the Savior is so much bigger than what they will see. What's sad to me about this encounter is what you see sandwiching that verse. So if you look in two, you can see that they're seeing his works and they're hearing his words and they're astonished. Like they're feeling something. Like we talked about several weeks ago, I feel like this is a spiritual impression that they're getting about the Savior, that there is something here and they're dazzled by it. And then what happens every time you get a spiritual experience is the, the adversary comes and tries to douse it with mortality, with those mortal blinders. He, he doesn't want you to knock down those walls. So he tries to douse them with reality that they can see and taste and smell. And for them, that is just this, isn't this just the boy from Nazareth? So that's how they react. Because of that reaction where they just neutralize that spiritual experience, essentially what happens is he can do no mighty works. So if you look in five, and he could there do no mighty work, save he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. What I really like that you see in Mark that you don't get in the other gospels is what you see in six. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went around the villages teaching. I, I thought this was a really powerful piece. I think oftentimes I see myself with just these mortal blinders. You know, I get opportunities to do something scary and hard and challenging and like inspiring, and I see myself as just the carpenter's <laughs> And I just kind of shut down. And I think when I, choose, when I choose that for myself, or I choose to see others that way, I think he is surprised at my lack of belief. I just think there, it's interesting to see that he has emotions towards them, that he marvels because of their unbelief, because he's done all these miracles. They've heard the witness. They've seen things. They should know that he's capable of so much more. The same way I should know. You know, I've seen him perform miracles in my life already, so I shouldn't be afraid. I should trust and I should believe that he can multiply me the way he multiplied the bread and the fish. But Somehow I, I tend to miss it. But I, I think 
it was interesting to me to see that his emotions are involved in this too, that he marvels that we still don't believe despite all the evidences. When you go a little bit further, you're going to see that he gives his apostles power. Just like we've talked about in the past, he's trying to endow them with power and to send them on their way without purse or script or any supplies. When you look in 13, you see what happens because of this choice. They, they go through, they go on their missions in these pairs and they go out and accomplish great things. We don't have a whole lot of detail about what they do. You just know in 13 that they cast out many devils and anointed many with oil, many that were sick and healed them. To me, I, I think that first moment when they anoint someone with oil and put their hands on their head for that very first miracle was probably a lot like walking on the water. You know, these were fishermen, tax collectors. These were ordinary men who were given extraordinary power. And because they chose to have faith in him and believe this power could work, it does. But their faith had to be involved and the other people. I just think every one of these apostles must have had their own walk on the water type moments. And they must have happened in this process. And then you learn a little bit as you go further in six about Herod. So this is the same story we heard before about why John the Baptist died. There are a few key things that I think are worth noting in Mark six. First off, I think you want to see that Herod is afraid of the ghost of John. This is really interesting to me. The same way I, um, I have a friend who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in the afterlife, but is afraid of ghosts. And the, the contradiction of that always kind of makes me laugh because it just seems sort of silly, right? And I think that's kind of what you see with Herod. He clearly isn't afraid of God. He beheaded his prophet, but he's afraid of the ghost of John that it might, you know, like there is a contrast that comes that I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around. The other thing you learn about Herod in the Mark account is in verse 20. Especially if you look at the JST, you learn that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy man. If you look in the JST, you see that he is someone that Herod believed in, that he had faith in, but he couldn't, that faith didn't sink in deep enough. Not deep enough that he could stand up to his wife and her demands, or the pride that he felt in the room when he'd made this big promise. The other thing you see is what he offered the dancing girl in front of him, his niece. Basically, in 23, he offers her half of his kingdom. I don't know why that jumped out at me this time. Maybe it's because of what we read in the Old Testament with Esther. I just thought that was such an interesting contrast, that Esther is offered half of the kingdom as well. And what she chooses to do is to leverage that to save an entire people. And what this girl does, I think at the request of her mother, is to leverage that power in order to destroy a prophet of God. And the contrast between those two young women was just sort of stark and instructive to me. And then you go a little bit further and you see why he has him beheaded, that he's afraid because of this oath. I think he probably made this promise to this girl in a moment of stupidity, maybe even drunken stupor, I'm not sure, but because he is afraid to back down and, and not have his oath be taken seriously, he carries it out. And so John is beheaded and his body is served up, or at least his head is served up to Herod's wife on a platter. One of my favorite quotes, I can't remember if it's President Kimball or President Hinckley. I, I didn't take the time to look it up, but it's in my margin. It says, the vast majority of work in the church is done by people who don't feel very well. And I just love that quote. I wonder sometimes if that's what's happening in the Mark account of the feeding of the 5,000. Because what you learn at the very beginning, right after the death of John the, the, John the Baptist, that they have come back from their missions and they are tired, you know? They've been working hard and they just got home and they're telling the Savior everything that's happened. And he says, you need to rest a while. So if you look in 31, and he said unto them, 
Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Like he's, he can see their fatigue and he's like, okay, we're going to go to a solitary place and we're going to regroup. What's amazing to me is what happens next. Basically, the people see them go and they run on foot to catch them. The disciples went in a ship, but everybody else must have like run along the coastline to try and keep up with them so that they could get to this solitary place. And this is where you see that same verse about the Savior having compassion on them, that he sees this multitude who is running to keep up to be where the Savior is and they, and he has compassion on them. And so he stops and he teaches them. And that's what makes me think of that quote of, I think the apostles are tired. I think the Savior is probably tired. But when compassion and fatigue are weighed out, the Savior always leans towards compassion and he stops and he teaches. In fact, what's interesting to me is it seems like he's teaching the multitude rather than healing them at this point in time. I'm sure it's a mix of both, but these verses don't imply that he's just performing healings. He seems to be actually teaching them. And I wonder if that impacts his compassion as well. He sees these people who are eager for guidance. In fact, what he says in 34 is that he, the reason he has compassion is because they were sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. These are people who are eager to hear his words and understand his teachings. And so, you know, I mean, no great teacher can resist a room like that or a desert like that. You, he is eager to help them understand who he is and why he came. So he starts to teach them. And then they start to get hungry. And so you have that same miracle play out, just with a slightly different twist. What I like in the Mark account is what you see in 36. First, would the apostles come to the Savior, they say they have nothing to eat. Meaning, it seems to me like they, they've looked over the masses and they're like, we've got nothing. We need to send them home so they can get food. And then they come up with a solution, right? So in 37, he answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat, right? This is that invitation of like, well, what do you want to do about getting air in your barges? What do you want to do about getting light? And so they come up with a solution. So they say, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Now, I doubt 200 penny worth of bread, meaning 200 days worth of labor bread is going to feed 5,000 plus all their families. But maybe this is all they've got. In fact, I kind of like seeing this almost like a widow's might moment. I don't know. I don't know if that's how this played out. But if the apostles in this moment are saying like, this is all we have in the coffer, but we could buy enough bread with just this. I think the Savior loves those kind of efforts. You know, when we do the very best we can to scrape together whatever mortal solution we can come up with and then come to him, he rewards that with grace. I've seen that in my life multiple times where, you know, it's the same thing we saw with the 16 stones. It's, this is the best I can come up with. Will you touch it and bring it light? And so that's what happens. He basically invites them to see things his way. So in 37, he answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, shall we go with, sorry, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? Now remember, they just told us in the verse before that there is nothing to eat. And then he says, go and see. This is an interesting twist to me. Oftentimes the Savior, when he is, when the Spirit's prompting me with an answer, I feel like the answer is often like, Maria, did you look again? Like, go look again. You know, I know you think you don't have any solutions. Go look again. It's almost like the story with Elisha and the servant opening his eyes. You know, he's basically saying like, there are chariots out there. You're just, your eyes weren't open to see them. Go and see. So now their eyes are opening and they're like, there must be something out there. And when they knew, they say, okay, 
we have five loaves and two fishes. This may have been something they were aware that they had before, but they never thought of it as a potential solution. And now the Savior is prompting them with these like, okay, are you seeing what we've got here? I, I just think it's training and tutoring. And so in 39, and he commanded them to make all sit down by companies on the grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties in 41. And when they had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided among them all. One of the things I love about this story, I had never read it with a sacrament lens, but I actually think we get to see this miracle play out all the time. The reason this came to me this week is Will was in charge of bringing the bread last week and he only brought like this half loaf of bread. And I was like, Will, that's not going to be enough. And he said, oh mom, we only need a couple of pieces. And I was thinking about like, our congregation is pretty big. Oftentimes we're halfway into the gym. How can only a couple pieces feed a whole congregation? And then I watched it play out and he was absolutely right. Like it doesn't take very much bread to fill. I know it's not the same kind of filling that these Israelites experienced, but there is something really powerful to me that we actually get to see this miracle play out every Sunday. We get to see a small amount of bread fill and create wholeness in people in a vast congregation. And I just loved that piece of the story. Not only that, but there is so much left over that they can gather it up into 12 baskets. The reason this jumped out at me is I think anytime I doubt that his grace is sufficient, no matter what it is, if it's a sin that I'm trying to deal with, if it's if I forgiveness I'm trying to seek, if it's forgiveness I'm trying to offer others, if it's whatever it is that I need the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ for, this miracle story should be evidence to my heart that his grace is sufficient. If he can feed 5,000 plus their families with five loaves and two fish, he can do miraculous things with me. One of the most comforting verses in scripture is one that talks about how God never slumbers or sleeps. And I think you get just a taste of that at the end of Mark. This is the same story that we read in Matthew about this, the apostles going out on the water of the Sea of Galilee and there's a great storm that comes. What's interesting about the Mark account is you get to see that the Savior is watching them. So in 48, and he saw them toiling in the rowing. I don't know if he's there for all four watches watching them, or if he's just there in this last fourth watch watching them. Either way, I feel the fact, the very fact that the Savior is up between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. after this enormously miracle-filled day where you know it takes effort and energy out of him, that he is up in those hard hours with his apostles, that just, you know, I think he is with us. I think in all of our trials and all of our fourth watch moments, he is with us, even if we can't see him close. And that's what's happening with the, these apostles. In fact, one of the things that was interesting to me as I was sort of, you know, going down the rabbit hole of this idea is I was led to the verses in Gethsemane when he asked three of these apostles to wait with him and watch with him during these hours of hardship. And they can't keep their eyes open and they struggle and they sleep. But the Savior does not. He waits and he watches and then he walks out to them. We know from the other verses that they're like three miles out into the water. So I don't know... I don't know how this plays out, you guys. I don't know if he walks three miles on the water to get to them or if he just arrives at where they are somehow with his powers. But regardless, the very fact that he's ever taken a boat before this is remarkable to me. Because if you can walk on the water, why doesn't he? You know, why, does, why was he in the boat the last time? And then it brought my mind back to those temptations of the adversary. I think the Savior is very careful to only use his power and his priesthood to do and to serve and when it's the will of God. And for whatever reason, 
in this moment, it's the will of God that he walk on the water to get to these apostles. And so he does. He walks towards them. You don't get the story of Peter walking on the water this time. You just get the story of the miracle of the storm being stilled. So when you see him walk on the water, if you go down to 50, they were they all saw him and were troubled and immediately talked with them. He, he talked with them and saith unto them, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And when he went up to them into the ship, the wind ceased. As soon as he steps onto the boat, the wind ceased. What was interesting to me is I wondered how they could hear him. You know, like if there really is this epic storm and they're so tired, how did they hear him? I, and then it was interesting because I'm reading the Book of Mormon alongside the New Testament. And I was reading that part about Nephi and Lehi when they're in the prison and they they can hear the voice. You know, all, even the people who are in the prison with them can hear the voice and they describe it as this piercing whisper. In fact, I wrote it in my margins. What does he call it? The voice of perfect mildness. It is this piercing sound. And I think there must have been something to that in this storm because whatever he says and however far away he is when he says it, it gets through to them and he gets on the boat and the storm stills and they're amazed. Here's what I think is really interesting about the Mark account. If you look at 52, it says they were amazed and they wondered for behold, they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. I found myself sort of wrestling with that verse. I'm like, what do you mean their heart was hardened? And what does the story of the miracle of the loaves and fishes have to do with the water? And then I started to think about what I had just read in the Book of Mormon. So there's this part where that same Nephi, when he's trying to teach the people and they won't listen, and he's aching, he's in his garden tower. Do you remember this part? It's like right before the Savior comes again or in Helaman. And it's he's wrestling with the fact that no one believes. And then he gets this visit. He gets this witness from the Lord that he he has power to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. In fact, what's it, you can go in Helaman and read it. I think it's in chapter 10. But he talked about how he'll now have the power to move mountains and he'll have power to do things according to the will of God, that God trusts that he would not ask for something that's out of the realm of what God would want him to do. So he trusts him. So what Nephi ends up asking for is for a drought to come, a, a, a famine of sorts, so that the people will humble themselves and turn to him. And I found myself wondering if that's what this verse means. If the Savior is trying to teach these apostles, look, I've given you power to accomplish miracles. What I showed you with the story of the loaves and the fishes and feeding 5,000 people, that priesthood power that I used, that's available to you. So why did you toil for nine hours on the water? Why didn't you pray sooner? Why didn't you try to still the storm? I don't, I don't know for sure, but part of me thinks that maybe that's what he's trying to teach each of us. There's a great talk from, I think it was Elder Uchtdorf, about living up to your privileges and appreciating the power of the priesthood, studying it and putting it to use. And I think I felt my heart pull towards those verses in that way, that I think we live below our privileges. And I think he wants to empower us to take care of our struggles so that we don't stay in the fourth watch all the time, that we choose to tap into the power he's given us to find relief. And so I think he's trying to train them in that way. Then when you go a little bit further, you see the same promise you saw in Matthew that as the Savior gets off this boat, he takes care of all the multitudes. In fact, the way it's written in Mark, it says that people carry the sick and infirm in their beds towards the Savior and that they line the streets with the sick and anybody who touches the hem of his garment is made whole, just like we saw with the woman with the issue of blood. John 5 has one of my favorite miracles. It's the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. So this happens on the Sabbath in Jerusalem at the time of a feast or Passover. Some kind of celebration is happening. 
And the Savior is there in Jerusalem, which means he could be at any number of places, you know, at synagogues teaching, on the streets, and instead he goes to this somewhat pagan place. I mean, this is a place where people have a superstition that if they can get into the water, in fact, if they can be the first one in the water after it's troubled or after it moves, then they can be healed. It's this superstition. And the Savior chooses to go there of all places. (laughs) And what's interesting to me is what happens there. In fact, I came across an article, I want to say, I can't remember how many years ago it was. It was as I was studying this this, um, story of the man at the pool of Bethesda. It's in the notes, but it was a therapist, I believe, who wrote it. And she used his story as a way to teach us how to help people who are dealing with long and hard grief or pain. That this is a way to show compassion because you see the way the Savior interacts with him. First of all, first of all, he goes where this man is, despite the fact that this is not a place that the Savior would hang out. He goes here because this is where this man is who needs help. So I think there's something important for me to understand about when I want to really help someone who is grieving or dealing with pain or loss, I have to meet them where they are. I have to take my compassion to them and I have to just listen. That's what I see the Savior do. So basically comes, he sees the man who's had this infirmity for 38 years, who has been trying over and over again to get into the water first and never can get there. And he asks him, wilt thou be made whole? You can see that in verse six. He doesn't ask the man to justify what has happened. He doesn't ask a whole history. He doesn't pry into any of the details. He just simply asks, do you want to be whole? And the man's response is really interesting. So he says in seven, sir, I have no man. When others are able to go into the water and have somebody to carry them into the water, he doesn't have that. And he's struggling because he can never get into the water first. Other people rush ahead of him. It's really interesting to me that the Savior takes the time to hear this piece of this man's story. Because again, the Savior doesn't believe in this tradition. He knows that the waters can't heal on their own. He knows all of those things, but he doesn't correct him. He doesn't, he, he creates this holy space by listening and letting this man just speak. It reminds me a little bit of when Lazarus dies and when Jesus is on the way to raise Lazarus, he takes the time to grieve with Mary and Martha. He lets them weep and then he goes and performs the miracle. I think when we're talking about how to minister to people who need the right kind of compassion, it has to look like this. It has to be something where we choose to just let them let them speak and let them be heard and not try to placate and not try to correct and not try to justify why these horrible things have happened, but just to let them be heard. And then to bless them with service and dignity. And that's what the Savior does. So in eight, Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And he does. This is what happened. The man in this moment, I don't know what kind of miracle has to happen in order for legs who that have been impotent for 38 years to all of a sudden be able not just to stand up, but to carry a bed and walk. I mean, think how much physical therapy that would require. This all happens in an instant and this man is healed. And what's interesting to me is what happens after. So the Pharisees see him carrying his bed and they call him on it because it's the Sabbath. And according to the oral tradition, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. And they consider carrying things work. This man doesn't know the Savior's name, and so he can't really report Jesus. He just says, the man that healed me is the one that told me to pick up my bed. So I'm picking up my bed. And I just think there's this, you can see he must have this like dignity that welled up in him because he is able to stand up in this moment. What, probably the most powerful part of this whole story to me is this understanding that sometimes you have to embrace the spirit of law. Like you have to let the people who need to be loved matter more than the rules that need to be followed. Sometimes you have to embrace that 
flexibility. <laughs> what came to my mind as I was studying this is, you guys will have to forgive me for all the cancer stories, but we, Jason and I are making these videos for our posterity. <laughs> so you're gonna hear a lot of those backstories. When Jason was very first diagnosed and we were in the hospital, like very first, we were still kind of wrapping our heads around this horrific diagnosis and what it would mean. <laughs> when we got admitted to the hospital and they put the band on him and he had the whole outfit, you know, the whole thing. The first thing he said to me is, Maria, do you want to get out of here? <laughs> and I was like, no, you just got admitted to the hospital. We're not going anywhere. And he was like, no, like if I'm going to, I wish I could remember the exact word he said, but he's like, if, if I'm going to face this cancer and I'm going to deal with all this, I'm going to do it on my terms. And so he put on a sweater and he threw his jeans on and he's like, we're going to go. We took a drive to 7-Eleven to get a random garbage gummy food and then come back to the hospital. Of course, got caught by the, the people in the ED as we were coming back in. But it was like, in that moment, I could have been really strict about the rules and I could have said, no, Jason, the nurses will never let you off this floor. We can't go with your little ID band. Like they called us at 7-Eleven. They knew we were gone and they called us on it. And it's, it's one of those moments where I could have followed the rules strictly. But what I did instead in that moment is just let Jason lead. And by letting Jason lead, I, for me, what I learned in that moment is when all control has been stripped from you and you can't see how you can control anything in the future, being able to grab onto something that you can control is healing. It's powerful. And I didn't, I didn't know it then, but I certainly can feel it now. And I think we have to approach our ministering and our, even just caring for our friends and our family in that way, that we have to let the person to be loved matter the most. And we have to find ways to give them dignity when they need help. And I think the Savior is a beautiful example of that. Breaking the rules of the hospital did not earn us popularity among the nurses. It does not earn the Savior popularity among the streets of Jerusalem either. In fact, the Pharisees turn violently against him because now they're seeking to slay him, if you look in verse 16. But by 18, they're it gets higher because now he's starting to compare himself with God. And that's where they start to turn from. Instead of just him breaking the Sabbath, now his offense is blasphemy. But what's powerful about the Savior's guidance and teaching here is he doesn't back down. He simply states who he is, that he works on the Sabbath the same way God the Father works on the Sabbath. Good things still happen. You know, the sun still goes up in the sky and comes down in the evening. The, the, God the Father works on the Sabbath and the Savior does his work. In fact, if you go a little bit further, you see other authority that he has received. So he talks about how he has power over life. This is a huge claim, especially to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's in 21. For as the father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the son quickeneth whom he will. He's already shown that he has power over death. We saw it with Jairus's daughter. We saw it with the widow of Nain and her son. He's shown that he has this God-like power. And so they should see this as evidence. In fact, this whole second half of Mark 5 or of John 5, it reminds me of the Book of Mormon. Do you remember when Alma is bantering back and forth with Korahor and Korahor wants a sign and Alma basically says to him, you've had signs enough. Like everything around you is evidence. You have all these testimonies of all these people. You have the scriptures before you and you have everything out in the world that denotes there is a God. You have plenty of signs. That's kind of what the Savior is saying to these Pharisees. Is there are witnesses everywhere. So he talks about what he's been given power to do, that he has power to judge. He has this authority given him. He talks about the resurrection that is coming, that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Especially if you look in the JST, you can see a little bit more of that. He's trying to teach them that he is the son of God, that he is this fulfillment of prophecy, that these Pharisees who love the scriptures and have studied the scriptures 
are missing it, that he is the fulfillment of those scriptures. And then he tries to give them all the witnesses. So this last column of text is all the witnesses that the Savior is trying to offer them, just like Alma gave Korahor. So the first one you see is in 31, that he's a witness of himself. But the Law of Witnesses says you can't just have one witness. You can't be your own witness. You need more. So then he lists many more. So the second one, you can see in verse 32, he witnesses that the Holy Ghost is a witness of him. We saw that at the baptism of the Savior. If you go a little further in 33, he talks about John the Baptist, who most of these people saw as a prophet of God. And he talks about how John the Baptist received his witness from God directly, especially if you go on the JST. So that's another witness that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. One of my favorites is in 36. This is where he talks about his works, that his works are a witness. I love this because it's not a person that he's citing. It's all the good he's done. All the people that they could talk to about the works, the man that he just healed at the pool of Bethesda is evidence that he is who he says he is. Because everything we've studied so far is saying that you can't have bad fruit come from a good tree and vice versa. So he's like, these good works that I do to benefit mankind, they, they are evidence of who I am. And then he talks about a big, mighty witness in 37, where God the Father himself has borne witness of him. So remember, at the baptism of the Savior and other places, you've seen God the Father witness. You'll see it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in 39, that the scriptures themselves are a witness of him. In fact, what he's trying to help them see is, I know you love the scriptures. I know you've searched the scriptures. You're missing the connection. The law of Moses that you cherish, it was supposed to lead your eyes to me and you're missing it. So he's inviting them to search, like diligently search and try and see me in the words. They love Moses. They praise Moses. And so he talks about how Moses himself testified of Jesus Christ. In fact, it says in 47, but if you believe not his writings, how will you believe my words? I think it's interesting that the Savior goes through all these witnesses. I think a big reason he does this, even though he knows the scribes and Pharisees will not listen, is because this becomes evidence against them. When he's drawn their eye to all the truth that is out there, and they deliberately close their eyes to it, this isn't weakness anymore, it's rebellion. And that's a different kind of accountability. It's the same thing we studied in the Book of Mormon. So I think he's trying to give them every chance he can to choose truth. And if they still turn against it, he's, he's done all he can. At the beginning of John chapter 6, you see those same two miracles back to back. The feeding of the 5,000 and the storm on the Sea of Galilee. But there are a few things in John that are a little bit different than what we saw in the other Gospels. So I think it's worth your time to study. Especially, I like what you find in verse 5 and verse 6. This is In this account, it seems like the Savior is the one coming to Philip saying like, what do you think we should do? If the people are hungry, what should we do? And it says in 6 that he does this to prove him because he himself knew what he would do. What I like about this is I actually feel like this happens to me in Revelation all the time, where I come to the Lord hoping for a specific answer. Like, I have a problem. I want a specific answer. Now, I don't even need the answer that I think might be right. I just want him to give me a very specific answer. And what the Spirit often prompts me is with additional questions. You know, I think it's the same thing we saw with Joseph Smith in the first vision. When he opens up James and he reads, it's like his mind is prompted with a question, like, maybe I could go Maybe I should go and pray. Maybe the Lord really will abradeth not. Maybe he really will answer. It's like he's prompted with questions and then he has to act on those questions. When he does that, he's proving that he's all in. And I feel like that's what the Savior is doing with these apostles. Another thing you get in the John account is you see that the, the solution comes from a little lad. What I like about this, I, I just, 
Okay, as a mom who has boys, I can't imagine. I mean, if this little lad has been carrying the five loaves and the two fish and they're in a desert solitary place all day, I can't imagine how mangled that food looks. I mean, have you ever pulled something out of your kid's backpack or out of their pockets and you're just like, you know, I just, I wonder how mangled this food was from this boy. I also wonder if he really is the only one that has something to offer. I, I don't know how this played out, but part of me wonders if they reached out to all 5,000 plus people and the only person who brought what they could to the table was this little boy. I just think it says something about the faith of children. I think the Savior responds to that faith. Sometimes I wonder if this miracle is less for the apostles who are learning how to use their priesthood power to control the elements as it is to show this little boy that when he brings something to the table, the Savior can multiply it. It is, it is a remarkable miracle that this little boy got to see firsthand and see how his little offering could reach everyone. I just think there's power in it. So you see the miracle play out, that nothing will be lost, all the fragments are gathered up, that everybody is filled the same way we've seen in the past. And then you see that the apostles wonder about how it all happens. In fact, the reaction that happens in the multitude is they're filled, and so they make assumptions. They've been waiting for a Messiah who will be like Moses, who will rain down manna from heaven. In fact, that's one of the miracles the Jews expected of their Messiah, that he would feed them. And so they're all of a sudden seeing this miracle play out, and they want him to be king. In fact, in 15, it says, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. They are hoping for a certain kind of savior, and they're expecting a certain kind of savior that will come and defeat the Romans and put them in power. What is interesting to me is I feel like what they're really hoping for is to be passive. They're hoping for a savior who will come and solve their problems and feed their bellies and take care of their enemies. They're hoping to be passive. And what the savior is trying to teach them is that's not my gospel. My gospel is an active gospel. You will become something by being in my gospel. And that causes some tension. But before we get to that tension resolving part, you have to see what happens on the Sea of Galilee. So just like we saw before, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the Savior sends the apostles on the boat so that they can go across the Sea of Galilee. And you learn a few things in the John account that you don't see in others. For example, you learn in 19 how far they went. So when they had rowed about 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs, meaning like, three, three and a half miles, nine hours to go three miles is a long time. Like they're making very slow progress. I think one of the people I read said it was like 70 football fields. Like that's a long way to row after they've already been so tired. And he comes on the water just like he has before and says, it is I, be not afraid. A new miracle that comes up in the John account that you don't see in the others is in 21, where he says, and then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at land whither they went. That piece of immediately they're at land, that means he took them from the middle of the Sea of Galilee to the shore immediately. I don't know how that happens or what it looks like, but that is a miracle in and of itself. What I love about that is it teaches me something about the fourth watch. I know a lot of you have probably read or heard the talk from Michael Wilcox. He's one of my favorite teachers about the fourth watch and this idea of when you're in the fourth watch, know that there will be an end to the fourth watch. And if you don't find, if the end doesn't come, then either it's not the fourth watch or you're built, you're built tight like a dish. You can find the link in the note to watch that BYU Education Week talk. But one of the reasons I struggle with that, with only seeing it this way, is I really feel like what the Savior is trying to teach the apostles is 
you have power to control your circumstances more than you are. I think he's trying to help them see that you don't always have to labor in the fourth watch. For me, I've seen this many times when I'm in one of those points where I'm like, where are you? Why aren't you helping? What is what is wrong? I feel like it is this invitation to, to choose to be proactive in my faith. I, I don't just need to keep rowing. I, I think sometimes when we teach this fourth watch story as just an endurance story, we, we lose sight of the fact that they could have chosen differently. You know, there's precedent in the scriptures for people like Moses and Joshua and even Elijah who stopped the rains in the heavens. There are prophets who have power over the waters. They have already seen the Savior have power over the waters in a previous storm. So I think he's trying to help them understand, you have power here. And I don't think that necessarily means that everything in my life is rosy if I learn to tap into my power. I do think it means that my fourth watch moments can be more joy-filled than just endurance. You know, President Hinckley said that this life is to be enjoyed, not just endured. And sometimes I think when we study the fourth watch story and we only see it as like, well, I just have to keep going and the Savior will come and deliver me at the end of the fourth watch. Then we don't seek for creative solutions and we don't pray for eyes to see the chariots that might be tucked around our surroundings. I think it's both. I think there's power in understanding that the Savior always does come and he always does rescue. I also think there's power in understanding that it might there might be a way to quicken that rescue if we live up to our privileges. We understand the power that he's already blessed us with and learn how to use it better. When you feed that many people, it causes ripple effects. Lots of people follow the Savior. In fact, they're chasing after him wherever he goes. They get to the place where he hits land after crossing the sea, and they wonder how he even got there. Like You can see that there is a stir happening. And the Savior sees all these thousands follow. So not just the 5,000 that he fed and their families, but probably those they've told about what had happened. And all of a sudden, there are masses of people following the Savior. And it's really interesting to see how he handles this surge of popularity. He doesn't coast on it. He teaches truth. In fact, he worries about the nature of their hearts. So if you look in 26, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. The JST clarifies that a little bit. They, they don't want to believe his words. They don't want to act. They want to be passive recipients of the blessings. They don't want the other piece. They just want what he can offer them. And so he clarifies. What I love is the way he chooses to do it. In 27, he says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for whom, for him hath God the Father sealed. He has something that is so much more filling than what they are feasting on. That one meal that they got has already gone. In fact, it's interesting, they compare it to Moses. So they, they seek a sign. They say to him, show us a sign. Remember, Moses brought manna down from heaven, so show us a sign. They just want another meal. and They want to be passive recipients of blessings. And he's saying to them, like, every one of those people that Moses filled, in fact, he clarifies that it's God the Father who filled their bellies with manna, not Moses. And he says, all those people are dead. That manna, even though it was divine, was not intended to fill forever. What I am is the bread of life, and I fill forever. So he tries to teach them this big doctrine in a way that's understandable to them, and they just struggle with it. You can see them kind of wrestle with it, and he tries to clarify. So you want to go a little slower through these verses, but like in 35, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I found this 
kind of interesting because part of me is like, but sometimes I do hunger. <laughs> sometimes I do thirst. I just, I think what he's trying to teach her is not that by being a disciple, you will never have hard times, that you will never hunger in this life and you will never thirst in this life. What he's trying to help them see is like way beyond this life, that if you choose to follow my gospel, you will learn to become like me. You know, it's that same seeds analogy that we talked about with the sower, where if you learned to plant seeds and you learn to cultivate those seeds and grow fruit, not only do you have the abundance of crops, but then you have the seeds from that harvest that you can replant and you can have this constant, I think that's the invitation of eternal life. It is this understanding that you're becoming as he is so that you can do what he can do and you will never hunger and you will never thirst. It doesn't mean you won't be uncomfortable in this life. It means the uncomfortable feeling you have in this life is worth it because of who you're becoming in the process. And in the long run, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. He goes a little further and he teaches them more deeply about his work. So in 39, he talks about how this, he only does the will of the Father. And the Father has told him that he should lose nothing. So this is where you learn more about the resurrection, that all will be brought back. That's the promise, that all will be brought back. Some in the resurrection of the just and some in the unjust, but all will be brought back. And interestingly, the reaction of this incredible gift is murmuring. So if you look at 41 and 42 and 43, they murmur at this teaching. I read a really good talk. It's in the notes from Neil A. Maxwell, where he talked about murmuring. And he basically said, it's murmuring happens when you want the blessings, but you don't want the discipleship. And you see that in the Book of Mormon, you see it in a few different places. But what was powerful to me is I think the opposite of murmuring is choosing to ask and seek and knock. These are hard doctrines to understand. In fact, they're going to call them hard sayings later. It's hard to wrap your head around it. But he's saying, if you don't understand, ask and seek and knock. Try to find out what I mean. You know, come, let's have a dialogue. Let's have a relationship. And they simply want to be passive recipients. And they, they just don't engage. But it's an invitation, I think, for us to engage. So we're supposed to set aside the tendency to murmur and to doubt and to bicker about what we don't understand and instead to lean in and seek something deeper. So he tries to teach them something deeper, how he is this, the, the bread of life that they will need to take into themselves. These verses can get a little cryptic to all of us. This When he starts to talk about himself, how they need to consume his flesh and drink his blood. It sounds really off-putting to us at first, but it wouldn't have been as weird to the Jews. This is something that was, they were really familiar with in their the way they practice their religion, like the Passover lamb was something they took into themselves. Even the Old Testament, Old Testament, do you remember when we were studying that they had, he had to like eat the book? Do you remember that we made a pastry puff book because you had to consume the words? These are words that are pretty familiar to the Jews. So that he was teaching in this way about how his, his sacrifice will be what allows them to have access to the fullness, to this everlasting life. It shouldn't have been such a hard saying, but sadly it is. In fact, that's where we're going to go next. Our gospel is a line upon line gospel, which means sometimes he's going to ask you to act without all the lines. <laughs> I, I kind of picture those, you know, like I talked about those transparencies that over time I get all the revelation and then I get a clear picture. Sometimes he asks you to leap out of the boat before you have all those layers. And I think that's sort of what happens at the end of six. No one really understands exactly what these phrases mean, right? He hasn't instituted the sacrament yet. That's going to come right before his crucifixion at the Last Supper. So they're going to have to learn this line upon line. Some of the apostles will be on the Mount of Transfiguration and they'll get a better understanding, but it's going to take time. 
what the Savior is asking all the multitude and the apostles in this moment of these hard sayings that they haven't quite fully wrapped their head around is to trust in what you do know. Like This is, I think, when we're supposed to look back at all those witnesses he just cited for us in the previous chapter and say, I don't know what this means, but I trust that you are a God who accomplishes good work. I trust that you are a God who is witnessed by God the Father and the Holy Ghost and the prophets. Like You are written in the scriptures. I have trust in what I do know, and it can carry me through what I can't quite understand yet. Elder Christofferson talked about how what that phrase means, it, that idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it just means seeking holiness, like choosing to set aside the natural man parts of us so that we can become something better. But they don't understand all that yet. What I think is really powerful about the difference between what the multitudes do and what the apostles do, especially Peter, is the apostles choose to trust in the faith they already have in order to carry them through the things they don't understand. And you see it play out. So in 60, when they say there's a hard saying, they talk about the Savior comes back at them and says, I, I know, I, are you offended at this? Like things are going to get intense here. To be a follower, a follower of Christ means you're going to have to be an active, agile disciple. This is not a passive faith where I'm going to feed your belly and guide you through the wilderness. All those people who wandered in the wilderness wandered in circles for 40 years and died at the end anyway. You are going to have something bigger. And that's what he's trying to offer them. And so he talks about that. Interestingly, Jesus knows who believes in him and who doesn't. You can see that in 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. What's interesting to me is what happens next. So if you go on 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. I think he knows who believes. But what's interesting is not all those who believe are the ones who stay. Some, even who believe in him, choose to go back. This was kind of haunting for me because I think all of us are in this spot where we have to decide, like, do you believe and how much are you willing to sacrifice? How much are you willing to put in? Can, will you be all in in this gospel? Because some went back. I think it's really interesting that phrase went back because really anytime we step away from the Savior and our testimony of him, we're going back. You know, it's like that Lawrence Corbridge talk, The Way, where he says, you know, like, there is the Savior's path and then there's every other path. And it doesn't even matter where all those other paths go because there's only one, right? I just think there's an, an emphasis on that. And so he asks his apostles who have the same agency that all those multitudes had in 67. And then Jesus said unto the 12, will you also go away? I think the Savior knows the answer already. I think you see that at the end of this chapter when he talks about Judas knowing that there's going to be someone who betrays him. The reason I think he asked this is so that Peter has to witness to himself what he knows. And so the other apostles can hear it. So in 68, Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I don't think Peter understands much better than any of the other apostles or multitudes what this sermon on the bread of life fully means. But what Peter knows is that he has a certainty of some things. And that certainty of those primary questions of who God is and is he the son of God, that certainty can carry him. I think it's the same reason I have to get certainty in my primary questions. If I know for a certainty that Joseph Smith did see who he said he saw in that grove of trees, if I know for a certainty that the Book of Mormon is true, if I know for a certainty that God is my Father and that Jesus Christ is my Savior, that can carry me through a lot of questions, a lot of those secondary questions. And I feel like that's what Peter demonstrates for us. He chooses to stay despite not having a full understanding. And because of that, he's 
increases in light and knowledge as he chooses to stay. And I think it's the same promise he offers to us as well. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week 13. There's a lot of creative directions you go with this week's study. So I just had to narrow it down to three. But let me show you what I've got in store. For those of you on YouTube or listening in the podcast, I'm just going to give you a quick preview of the three object lessons. But if you're in the course, then keep watching and you'll see another 15 minutes of video to walk you through each one. Okay, the first one, I really thought we should focus on this amazing miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. It's something that applies to all of us since we all feel like we offer these meager offerings to the Lord and then he can touch what we do and make it so much better. So I wanted a visual way to demonstrate that. So I've created a piece of paper for you that has loaves and fishes. It's a basket and then I'll show you a way to multiply it. So you're going to make this little six by six piece of paper turn into something that's so big that like two kids could be inside it and I'll show you how. The second one, I really love the verse that's about the apostles going out and performing the miracles that the Savior taught them. What I particularly love is they talk about how the apostles used oil. They anointed with oil. I think this is one of those things that my kids have seen a lot of times. They've seen a lot of healing blessings happen at our house. I don't think I've ever sat down to explain to them why we use oil or what it means. So I thought this would be a good week for that. And in addition to that, I'm giving you some tools that help you use your oil more effectively and more in line with what the the handbook teaches. So I've created some printables like this card that will give you all the four Melchizedek priesthood holders, the instructions on how to consecrate oil, how to anoint, how to seal an anointing, all those details on a card that you could fit in your wallet or stick in your glove box. So if you ever need quick access, you'll have it handy. I'm also giving you some tools that you can put on the consecrated oil you have at your house. So if you have one of these little vials or these little bottles, I'm giving you some labels so that you can let your kids know what this bottle even is. And then on each, there is a QR code that takes you to the instructions on the church website for how to use the oil, how to consecrate it, how to do the blessing, how to seal the anointing. All those things are linked in. So I'm hoping that makes that a little bit easier. The last object lesson isn't so much an object lesson as it is a challenge. So this is the very end of the first quarter of the New Testament, which means we have a Kahoot challenge coming your way. So since it's the first quarter, there's only 25 questions that are based on all the 13 lessons we've studied so far. You should remember on the Kahoot challenges that I make, I try to gear them towards like seminary age kids. So if you have a mixed age group in your family, you may want to make two teams. If you haven't played Kahoot before, you're just going to need a couple smartphones, one for each team or one for each player if you have that many on hand. And you're also going to need something to display the questions on, like a TV or a computer monitor, something that you can cast you know, a website up to. If you can get that set up, then you should be good to go. All right, you guys, let's get into the details. Guys, we made it through quarter one. All right. Just like you've probably seen on the chart at the very last week of every quarter, we have a Kahoot challenge. Because my goal, you guys, is that your kids will recap everything you've studied so far. And if you're anything like my family, we've been a little hit or miss. Some weeks we've done great, and some weeks we have not done so great. So my hope with this challenge is that you'll actually flip through the Come Follow Me manual as a family or as a class and recap each lesson. So there's only 13 so far. Just give them a quick recap of what you studied and what they know, and then take the challenge. If you haven't been part of this course before, Kahoot is pretty familiar to those in the course. It's just a web-based game that your kids can play. You just need to be able to have some big monitor so they can see the questions. So the idea is really simple. I create multiple choice questions in the Kahoot challenge. You're going to cast those up on a big screen or on a laptop screen, 
And then your kids are going to use devices to answer the questions. So on their device, they'll see the four multiple choice options and they'll have to pick fast. In fact, Kahoot rewards winners, rewards the people who choose the correct answer first. So they're motivated to choose fast and choose right. And then at the end of the 25 questions, you'll be able to see very clearly who the winner is. But the big benefit is that you can also see the questions that they struggled with. So if there's areas that they misunderstood or they didn't catch, the Kahoot challenge actually helps you see where those dark spots are and where you can focus. So take this week to review what they've learned, maybe cover up some of the gaps where they're a little hazy and get yourself ready for quarter two when we start a whole new section. All right, you guys, that is it for week 13. Okay, I hope you enjoy this very miracle-filled week. It is rich with miracles and doctrine and understandings about who the Savior is and why he cares so much about us. So I promise you're going to love your study. If you have questions about the object lessons or how they play out, you're welcome to join me on Instagram. So Monday mornings at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, I jump on for a live where I talk about some of the backstory behind my insights, add in a few that I didn't have room for here in the videos, and then talk through the object lessons and answer any questions that you might have. If you're in the course, you're also welcome to message me on the discussion boards. It's a quick way to get direct access to my inbox. So if you have a question about the doctrine or about the printables or how to pull something off, send me a message that way and I will happily reply. But all right, you guys, I think that's it for this week. If you're listening on the podcast or watching on YouTube, I just want to say thanks for being here. Thank you for your comments and your reviews. They mean a lot to me and they help other people find the content. So thank you for all that you do. Okay, guys, enjoy week 13 and I will see you on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.